0: Amen. Well, how's it going, Redemption Flagstaff? It's nice to see you. Um, I should mention that um, it is a real gift to be here. I have been praying for Redemption Flagstaff since before it was Redemption Flagstaff. We used to come up here even before Vince moved here and pray over the city and um, many nights over the years I've I stayed awake late and prayed for you and it is a gift this is my first time being able to worship with you and it's a gift to be here with you so my name is Jim Mullins I'm one of the pastors at Redemption Tempe I think my title is something along the lines of pastor of teaching communities and cultural engagement which is intentionally ambiguous for all the strange collections of things that I do there uh, And uh, basically today I'm going to lead us through Mark chapter 4, uh, verses 35 through 41. If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand, and there will be some folks who will bring a Bible to you. Um, I don't know if they say it's okay for you to take that Bible, but I'm going to go ahead and just give it away on their behalf, if you don't have one. I got the thumbs up from the back. All right. Um, Not stingy with Bibles here. That's a good sign for a church. Well, if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 4, starting with verse 35. And I'm going to just walk us through the text um, just to give us the overview, and then we'll dive into a few uh, key things here. Uh, Verse 35 says, On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with him in the boat, just as he was. Jesus had been teaching all day long, and it was, it was time to move on. It was time to go across to the other side. So he was speaking to the crowds using the boat as a pulpit, and they just got on the boat and took off and went from there. Then it says, And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so the, that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm, and he said to them, Why why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So this is a passage that many of us have heard before The disciples go out on a boat, Jesus is in the back sleeping, a storm comes along, and they think they're going to drown, and they call out Jesus and they say, don't you care that we're perishing? Don't you care that we're about to go down? And then Jesus, in this great display of his sovereignty and power, speaks peace to the storm, calms the storm, and then asks them some questions about where their faith is, why they are afraid, and the disciples are left stunned and in awe of Jesus. This passage here shows both the humanity of Jesus, that he's asleep in the back of the boat, fully human, needing sleep, but also the deity of Jesus, that he is the sovereign God over all creation and all powerful at the same time. This passage Speaks to the realities of the relationship between faith and fear and those sorts of things. And I think it's kind of fitting that we talk about those things on a day like today, uh, which happens to be the intersection of Mother's Day and NAU graduation. Any graduates here? Uh, All right. Congratulations. Well, mothers, if there's anyone who knows fear, it's a mother who has to oversee the life of this tiny, fragile human being and, and is concerned about their future, their safety. Another person who might know fear is someone who graduated from NAU with a liberal arts degree, and they're wondering, what's, what's my future hold? What has this degree in pre-barista going to do for me in, in life? So you're wondering, On a serious note, what is the future going to be like? Can I get a job? Will I be able to support a family? Where do I go from here? And so it's a good day to talk about fear. And by way of introduction, I probably don't... I usually wouldn't start out with as much of a story, but you don't know me, so I'm going to tell you some stories from growing up. So you get to know me and get to know my relationship to fear. See, there was a day... A day when I thought I was a courageous guy, a day that I thought that I didn't struggle with fear, it was when I was in junior high and high school. My nickname was Manchild. For some reason, I hit puberty at a way early age. This was as tall as I was in the seventh grade, and I had like a mustache and a beard. And we just liked to do crazy stuff all the time. We would ride on the tops of cars. We would jump off of things into shallow water. Um, One time someone dared me to put a handful of oleander leaves in my mouth And I did, and nothing happened, but still Um, even, Even I had kind of a rough past and we would get in fights When people tell you fights from high school They always tell you the fights that they win But the reality was I lost maybe most of the fights Because I was always picking fights with people who were bigger and stronger than me And usually were adults and who also assumed I was an adult Because of the beard and those sorts of things And so, if you notice, my funny looking nose that goes in different directions, that's because of some of those things. Now, I grew up priding myself in the fact that I wasn't afraid and I could do all kinds of stuff. And the reality was, that wasn't uh, faith or courage or anything like that. The reality was, I was an idiot. And that's all that was playing out in my youth. Later on, I was a young believer— I'd come to know Jesus, and I wanted Jesus to be known to the ends of the earth. And I started something called the Moravian Community. There were about 120 of us who were all uh, hoping to go overseas. We were living in the international student neighborhood. And our aim was to go to some of the places where the gospel was not yet, where there was persecution and things like that. And I used to tell people, I said, my greatest aspiration in life is to get my head cut off preaching Jesus. And I meant it. And it was tough for me because I had the funny-looking nose, and I'm saying things like that, so I couldn't find a date. It was kind of hard for a while. Nobody wants to date the guy with the funny nose and who wants to get his head cut off as a, his greatest aspiration. But eventually, my, my, my wife, Jenny, who's here, uh, who actually has faith, <laughs> uh, decided that, that she would walk with me and marry me. And we used to do crazy things. We would go to the... We, uh, um, like one time... I went to the border of Turkey, Iran, and Iraq. And we were a bunch of friends of ours. We were going around and we were meeting people, sharing the good news, uh, serving folks. And this was an area that's known for having uh, the, the Kurdish terrorist group, the PKK. And we were there and we played soccer with these guys one afternoon, had fun. They invited us over for dinner and we realized that we were actually, as we walked in the room, we saw the propaganda on the wall we were in an apartment of some of the leaders of this terrorist organization who would blow things up, would abduct people to get across their message of Kurdish identity and those sorts of things. And while we were there, I remember just feeling like that God had given us uh, favor. Uh, They sung some songs to us. And they they, uh, shared with us their story. We sung some worship songs. It was cool. Imagine in a room full of guys with guns and things like, like that and propaganda on the walls singing these worship songs. And it was awesome. We were telling them about Jesus. I thought that I did not struggle with fear and that I trusted Jesus. But then I got married, then I had a daughter. And I'm telling you right now, the guy who's going to lead you through this passage is someone who struggles with fear. With the welfare of my wife and of my daughter and what's going to happen to them. And one day when I lived in Turkey, we lived in Turkey for three years, God brought my greatest fear right to my face. Just as the, as the disciples in this passage were going through one of the most terrifying moments of their life, I'll tell you one of the most terrifying moments of my life. We were in Turkey. It was six weeks after my daughter was born. I was holding her. And my wife uh, and I, we were actually talking about our future. What's going to happen in the future? We were dreaming things. Dreaming about businesses we could start. What, would, what it would be like when we have a kids, a bunch of kids one day. And then all of a sudden my wife started hemorrhaging. It was six weeks after our daughter was born, and it got serious. All of a sudden, Jenny was losing her coherence. And so I called the ambulance, the ambulance didn't come. I called a friend, my friend came over, and we're trying to figure out what to do. And then all of a sudden, Jenny passes out. She goes limp. So. One of my friends takes my daughter, and my, my other friend and I, we pick up Jenny, and we carry her down five flights of stairs. We catch a taxi. We jump in the taxi. We go to the hospital, and we, when we get into the hospital, they say it should be 30 to 40 minutes before we know what's going on. I'm sitting in the waiting room. 30 to 40 minutes turns into an hour. An hour turns into two hours. Two hours turns into three hours. My friend comes and brings my daughter, and I'm holding my daughter, not knowing what's going on with my wife in the other room, not knowing if in that moment she was actually still alive. I'm looking at my daughter and wondering, is she ever going to be able to experience a Mother's Day with her mom? Is she ever going to know, have a memory of her mom? How am I going to raise this kid by myself? Am I ever going to see my wife again? What is God doing? Does he care? Does he know that I'm a missionary guy who came to Turkey and now my biggest fear I'm confronted with? And fortunately, the doctor came in and it was the best news I've, uh, some of the best news I've ever heard as she came through and said, Your wife's going to be okay. But in that moment, I was forced to wrestle with the big questions of life to be honest. And I think in the crazy moments of life, that's when we ask the big and honest questions. And that's in many ways what's happening to the disciples today. So I'm going to ask three of those questions and reflect on those questions according to the text. And the three questions are these. Number one, does God care? Number two, is God strong enough to help me? Number three, what is there to be afraid of? So let's start with number one. Look at verse 35 and 36. Mark chapter 4, verse 35 and 36. It says, On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him in the boat just as he was. And other boats were with him. So Jesus had been teaching all day long. And it, it was evening time and Jesus was exhausted He's, he's in the boat. They had moved the boat into the, to the, um, out into the water, and he was, he was standing on the boat as sort of a platform or a stage or a pulpit, and he's preaching to people. And you can imagine, it says they, they left just as he was. Basically, at the end of the day, Jesus didn't get out of the boat and shake hands and greet people or anything. He just said, okay, teaching's done, let's go. And he just sat down, and the boat took off. And these other boats were with him, and the disciples were with him. He's exhausted. Our God, who's fully God but also fully man, experiences the full humanity with us in the carnation, and he's asleep in the back of the boat. And they're traveling through the night, which is interesting because the Sea of Galilee was known as being a dangerous sea. The disciples knew it, and they're traveling in the middle of the night with limited visibility. Verse 37 and 38. It says, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling, but he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? See, the, the great windstorm, the, the word that's used there actually has this connotation of like a mini hurricane. Hurricane. The Sea of Galilee was known for these horrible storms because you had these high cliffs that would almost be like a wind tunnel and that would knock boats over and push them over completely. And you had to interchange between the warm water of the Sea of Galilee and the cold air of Mount Hermon. And there are the, were these sudden storms that would come upon people in the Sea of Galilee. Even today, Palestinian fishermen call it the Sharkia, the shark storm that comes and snatches you up and, and knocks you over. And one of these was happening as the disciples were trying to, to cross the Sea of Galilee. And you can just imagine the waters get a little choppy. And then all of a sudden it's raining and the boat's starting to fill with water and there's lightning and there's thunder. And now there's chaos on the boat. You're trying to paddle as fast as you can. You're trying to get out of there as fast as you can. You're, you're Tossing water out of the boat, your whole caravan looks like it's about to sink. And you look back and notice that Jesus is still asleep. He's on the cushion, he's still sleeping. And what do they say to him? I find it's interesting. This question that they ask Jesus has haunted me. They don't say to Jesus, Hey, Jesus, wake up, please help us. They ask if he cares. Say, Jesus, they said, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing, that we are dying? And this leads me to the first question that we ask when times are turbulent. The important questions of life, and it's, does God care? And a lot of times when we face those circumstances where we get news of cancer or we get laid off from a job, or we're wondering what's going to happen with the economy. The question that's under the question is, does God care? And we all ask it at various times. Right now, in a Flagstaff hospital, there's a man who's perched on the, on the railing of his wife's bed, listening to the doctor describe the cancer. And he is saying, Jesus, do you not care that we are perishing Trembling right now in a Flagstaff living room is a little boy who wishes that his father's fists would become a hand on the shoulder, and he is asking, Jesus, do you not care that I'm perishing? There's a a girl in a dorm room at NAU whose heart aches with regret and sadness as she thinks about how her parents never saw her And so-called men see her, but in dehumanizing ways, she is asking, Jesus, do you not care that I am perishing? And on the streets of Baltimore right now, there are people who are chanting, and there are police who are afraid, and both of them, in the midst of this chaos, are asking, Jesus, do you not care that we are perishing? I've asked this question as well. Two years ago, my precious daughter, the daughter that... It brings me all kinds of fear in life because I just wonder how things are going to go for her. We started to notice that developmentally she was behind a bit, and eventually we got the diagnosis that she has autism. And she's an amazing kid. You'd love her. Uh, I'm going to bring her up here sometime, and you all just delight in her. But because of autism, some of the sounds, there's a lot of sensory issues, so light and sounds can really haunt her. And almost, I would say, 80% of the nights uh, of since she's been born, she wakes up in the middle of the night. And it's the slightest sounds outside that keep her awake. It's the, the, the lawnmower, the car passing by. And as we're trying to comfort her in the middle of the night, we say, we call out and we say, Jesus, do you not care that we are perishing? If we're really honest, we ask that question sometimes, and we can, but we can take comfort in this, that there is another person who asked that question. From the anguish of the cross, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, "Why, do, Father, do you care that I am perishing? And we know that Jesus cares that we are perishing for a number of reasons. All throughout the Bible, it speaks of God's love and concern for us. But furthermore, it also does say that God has reasons that he shapes us through trials. But even further than that, the uniqueness of our God is that our God is with us in the midst of suffering. He is with us in the incarnation he took on flesh, walked among us, and felt the brutality of this world. Our God does not watch us suffer from a distance, but he is with us. I want you to be atten- to pay attention to the location of Jesus in the midst of the suffering of the disciples. He's in the boat. Jesus is in the boat with us in the suffering of this world. This is one of the most unique things about the gospel that can't be uh, replicated in any other world view he's with us in suffering socially and spiritually and physically the gospel says jesus is with you in the boat consider this in comparison to other world views buddhism says to the disciples sinking sinking boats are a part of life detach yourself from the fears in the boat islam and judaism say if you're good enough god might rescue you from the boat mormonism says I'm with you in the boat as long as you keep paddling. Pantheism says, the, the storm is divine and this divine is sinking your boat. Humanism says, hey, you can do it, build a better boat. Consumerism says, you're sinking? Well, I got a boat for you for 10 installments of 9.99. Naturalism says, it's okay. Your death is just part of natural selection. And it strengthens the gene pool to weed out idiots who don't take nighttime boat trips. And postmodernism says, don't you impose on me your narratives about the boat. But Jesus says, I am with you in the boat. And when we encounter suffering in the most terrifying things of our life, the big fears that that come face to face with us. We know, we don't know why God is always doing it. We don't. We can't give simplistic answers, but we know that God is with us and is relating to us on the cross. He felt the physical pain. He felt the spiritual alienation from God as he felt lonely on the cross, as he was betrayed by those that he loves. Who can Jesus relate to? He can relate to all of us. Because it says in John 1:14, "And the word became flesh, and the flesh dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What does this mean? This means that Jesus can relate to the abused, as he was hit over and over by Roman soldiers, as he was forcibly pinned to the cross and stripped and shamefully exposed in front of the whole city. He can relate to children who are exposed to violence at an early age because when Jesus was born, Herod had an edict that called for basically a genocide, the assassination of firstborns. And Jesus saw, before Jesus could ever even die for the children in his own community, they were dying because of him. And he saw violence. And then they fled. Can you and I relate to the refugees in Syria Can we relate to to refugees right now in Iraq? No, we can't. Many of us can't. But Jesus can because he fled to Egypt holding his mother's hand, fleeing the only place that he had known his memories and going to a place completely foreign to him. Jesus was a refugee. He can relate to the refugees He can relate to those who experience homelessness as the one who's the sovereign Lord and creator over everything, who owns everything. He had no place to lay his head and depended on the hospitality and generosity of others. Jesus can relate to the isolation and loneliness as he sat in the garden of Gethsemane facing imminent death the next day and his friends asleep and betraying him. Jesus can relate to the physical pain of those who suffer from injury and disease. See, the very hands that were pierced are the ones that reach out to those who struggle with arthritis. He walks among the paralyzed with feet that were immobilized on a wooden beam. And with lungs filled with blood, he preaches peace to those with stage 5 lung cancer. Our God is with us. Does he care? Yes. He cares because he's with us. And this is the uniqueness of the gospel. He enters into our suffering. But that leads us to the second question. Is God strong enough to help me? Is God, maybe you believe that he loves you, but you're still going through some stuff. Jesus has not said to the circumstance in your life, peace, be still. He has not calmed the storms that you are facing. And we wonder, is he strong enough to help me? What we see in Mark 4, 39, a resounding yes. It says, And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. This isn't Jesus giving a quiet suggestion to the wind and the waves. This is him rebuking him. The word here is muzzled. He put a muzzle on the storm that was happening there. Jesus wakes up, And with his very word, takes a hurricane and shows the hurricane a greater hurricane. Jesus is fully God. He is the source of all power, Lord over all creation. And with his very word, he can calm the storm and every other crazy, painful, difficult, fearful circumstance that is in our lives. Now, he literally calmed the storm. But in doing so, he was also doing something symbolic. You see, throughout the Old Testament, the Jewish people were terrified of the sea. They did not like the beaches. They were terrified of the sea. The sea had become symbolic of all that is evil and chaotic in the world. So there are these promises throughout the Old Testament that one day God's going to come and he's going to get rid of the sea. Now, with Western eyes, when I first read some of these promises, I was really disappointed in that. Like, Jesus... Why would you get rid of the ocean? The ocean's cool, man. Like, don't get rid of the ocean. But imagine what the sea was like to people in that day who didn't have GPS, there wasn't a Coast Guard, and if you had to travel or make your living in the sea, there are a bunch of things in there that you don't know what, if they want to eat you. If you, you can drown, you can get lost. And so it was the symbol of, of that which was terrifying to them. And, and we see also that... That what Jesus is doing here is he's, he's literally calming the storm, but he's signaling to the disciples that the one that you've been looking for, the one who calms the sea, who gets rid of the sea, is the one who's here today. Many of us, though, we haven't experienced that power in some of our present suffering and Scripture speaks to uh, the many ways that God is using our suffering in this present time. But my friends, I'm telling you, a day is coming when it's going to be done. The day when God comes and restores all things and wipes every tear away from every eye. It's in Revelation 21. Revelation 21, verses 1 through, through 5. If you, go, you can go ahead and turn there if you'd like. It speaks to the day... When, it, when all the storms finally are calmed. Verse 1 says Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. The new heavens and new earth, when Jesus returns and restores all things, says that the sea will be no more. Cancer will be no more. A fear of a failing economy will be no more. Worry about a child's future will be no more. Broken relationships will be no more. God will one day do away with all that is broken and restore everything. At the center of it, in verse 2 and 3, it talks about God's presence being with us. That heaven and earth go together in the same boat. And that God will vanish All death and all pain, ultimately, in verse 4 and 5, where it says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning or crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. No more tears, no more terrifying circumstances, no more storms. But there's a day coming when Jesus returns and he will speak peace to every circumstance that haunts us for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. There's a day when he renews all things and makes all things new. And just as Jesus rebuked the storm, there's a day coming when he will restore the whole world. And in that day, his healing will cancel out cancer. His presence will chase away loneliness. Homeless will dwell in mansions. The unemployed will be, unemployment will be fired as we all engage in meaningful work. Those who hide in dark alleys will be brought to light. Harsh dictators will bow their knee to the true king over everything. And from downtown Flagstaff to the towers of Dubai, Jesus will speak peace to all of creation and all things will be made new. And he is powerful enough to do it. And there's a day coming when he will do it. And right now we walk with him and we struggle and we sing with the psalmist, how long, O Lord? But there's a day when that song ends and Jesus says, today is the day. Which brings us to our third question. What is there to be afraid of? Now, most of the time when people ask that question, they're asking it rhetorically. They're asking it to say, almost encourage you that there's nothing to be afraid of. Moms do this. You know, I was thinking about this yesterday. My mom did this a lot. My mom would come to me and say, don't worry, there's nothing to be afraid of. And somehow that comforted me. But why should that have comforted me? Don't worry, there's nothing to be afraid of. Yeah, but I could get hit by a car, mom. Yeah, ISIS exists. There is stuff to be afraid of. And so just the casual... Don't worry, be happy, there's nothing to be afraid of. That's not real. That's not being honest with the way that the world is. And adults say absurd things like this too. Uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, my namesake, my middle name came from FDR, it's Delano, but my family were like West Virginia uh, hillbillies, so they call it Delano. He said in his famous inaugural speech, the only thing we have to fear is Fear itself. Doesn't that sound good? Doesn't that sound good? That's absurd. That doesn't work when a car is coming your direction. That doesn't work for people who are in Iraq right now. That doesn't work when you have to pay the bills and you have a family. The only thing to fear is fear itself. No, actually, you know, someone with a knife. Be afraid of that person. (laughs) Thanks, FDR. Great advice, right? But we do live in a world that, if we're honest, has some pretty terrifying things. But the question is, what should be legitimately feared? And in verse 40 and 41, and we'll close with this, Jesus speaks to it. He said to them, this is after he calmed the storm, he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this? that even the wind and the sea obey them, obey him. Now what we have here is Jesus questioning the disciples. It almost seems kind of harsh, where he says, where's your faith? Why are you afraid? And I think the disciples would have a fair argument to say, well, it was the hurricane. It, you know, it was, it was not some light thing. It was like we almost died and you were asleep. But I, what Jesus is doing here is he is training his disciples He's about to send them out to cities where they will be stoned, where they will be shunned, where they will have to depend on the hospitality of others, where they'll go hungry. Almost all of the disciples faced significant persecution and even martyrdom. And he's training them by asking them these questions and causing them to realize who it is that they're dealing with, namely Jesus. And when they realized what had just happened that basically Jesus had walked up to a storm, walked up to a hurricane, and punked it with his power. They're they're encountered with a God, and they are awestruck. They are amazed. It says, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? And it said that they were filled with great fear, That, that they trembled before Jesus more than they ever trembled before that great storm. And so the reality is that we have to live with fear in life because there are some very real and very serious things in the world that we will tremble at. But if there is someone who's greater, who's stronger, who's overcome those things, one that is a greater hurricane than that hurricane, and we can tremble at him, we can live a life free from the fears of this world, trembling in awe of the one who knows how to deal with them. We can either live in, with a fear that paralyzes or a fear that catalyzes. A fear where we are terrified of the world and we're trying to just save and preserve ourselves. It's a life that's filled with a lot of hand sanitizer, a lot of sleepless nights, and a lot of hoarding of money. Or... the fear that catalyzes, the fear of the disciples here, where they found something greater to be in awe of, namely the sovereign Lord Jesus, who's sovereign over all of creation. And their fear of him, their reverence of him, catalyzed them to go live all of life, all for Jesus, to bring the good news to the ends of the earth, to seek the shalom of the city without regard to fear, to be generous, to give of their time, their money, their skills. And if we as a church, as Redemption Church as a whole, and you as Redemption Flagstaff can be gripped with the awe and the fear of God, you will fill this city with generous time, money, and skills for the flourishing of Flagstaff. You will live all of life, all for Jesus. You will enter into vocational fields to bless rather than to preserve yourself. You will stay in Flagstaff and and work crazy jobs knowing that God is your provider. You will speak the truth in love even when it's hard and people don't want to hear it and they may shun you for it. If we learn to tremble before Jesus, we will engage the world without fear of the things in this world because we know the one who has overcome the world in his the storm that's bigger than all of the storms. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Redemption Flagstaff, and I thank you for us as a church um, that you have placed my friends here in this city in this time. And God, I just pray that they would be enamored with you, enamored with your greatness and strength, but also of your humanity that you came and experienced the fullness of all that we are afraid of. You are the greater fear that casts out all the other fears and help us to tremble before you and trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.